James chapter 1, and we're looking particularly this morning at verses 26 and uh, 27, but I wanted to begin reading at verse 20, or verse 19. We'll start at verse 19 and read through verse 27 of James chapter 1. So James 1 verse 19, listen now to the reading of God's holy word. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty, and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Let's seek the Lord's blessing on this, His holy word. Gracious God in heaven, we, we do praise you and thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for <clears throat> just the opportunity that you give to us to uh, gather together here on the Lord's Day each week and to, uh, to worship and to praise uh, and especially to hear your word as it is read and proclaimed and sung. And as it truly ministers to our hearts, we pray, especially even now, that as your word goes forth in the power of the Spirit, that it might truly find within each of our hearts that rich, fertile soil that will bring about great and abundant fruit for your glory. Uh, we pray for your blessing now upon your word. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, so far in his, in his letter, James has sought to reassure his readers of the, the certainty of their hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he especially oppresses this because the ones to whom he is writing were enduring various trials, persecutions from without, and even temptations from within. And indeed, such trials can often lead to doubts and misgivings about one's assurance of faith and one's place in, in God's perfect plan of salvation. And so to emphasize this assurance, James has sought to challenge his readers to be faithful hearers, receivers, and doers of God's word. For in this way, they'll be well established in their faith even as like a firmly planted tree by streams of water, which brings about great and abundant fruit for the Lord's glory. Well, as we noted uh, previously, that all three of these components, hearing, receiving, and doing of the word, are all critical to a true and sincere faith in the Lord. 
We can't just hear and receive, we must also do. And we can't truly do unless we, of course, hear and receive the truth of the gospel faithfully and regularly. But in our passage this morning, James has one more caution. Though it's truly necessary to be doers of the word, well, this doesn't mean that our faith and our religion is a series of empty uh, ritualistic uh, actions. Unfortunately, this is how many who claim the name Christian practice their religion. And it's even also how the world and outside the faith view Christianity. And for James' reason, uh, readers, most of whom were uh, Jewish Christians with a Jewish heritage, Well, this is precisely what had become the Jewish religion. It had become empty rituals with an emphasis on the traditions of men rather than on the pure word and the law of God. But what James seeks to emphasize here is nothing more than what Jesus emphasized in his teaching and even what God had previously desired from the Old Testament believers. James shows that true Christian religion brings glory to God by loving God first and foremost in our lives and loving our neighbors as ourselves. James begins here then by testing those who believe that they are religious. He says in verse 26, If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Now we first want to consider here, what does James mean by religious? We think about the word religious today and our common use of it. Being religious often has a very negative connotation. When we speak of someone who's religious... Or when someone talks about somebody who's religious, they tend to think of somebody uh, who of just the outward rituals and the ceremonies that they engage in. Someone who, who goes to church, they read the Bible, they pray, or they simply even just mention God in conversation, and they're suddenly labeled religious. But if you note that the focus is on the externals, to the exclusion of the heart condition, And when there's this focus, it means that there are many people who do religious things who may, but who may not be sincere in their faith. And this is why the charge of hypocrisy is often associated with those who are called religious. Religious people tend to be called hypocrites because they engage in certain religious activities out of a sense of, of duty or habit. But those activities have no apparent bearing on the condition of their heart and how they live their lives. Now this negative sense of being religious was also common during the first century. In fact, we know Jesus regularly condemned the scribes and the Pharisees who engaged in all sorts of religious activities and outward duties of righteousness... And yet their hearts were far from God. They were just going through the motions. They were hypocrites. And this hypocrisy is exactly what James is trying to expose here. 
Now granted, few people in James' day, and even, of course, fewer today, would want to self-identify as religious for this very reason. Right? Who, who, who of you have ever gone out and t- says to somebody, well, I'm religious? Well, you're not going to do that because, again, of that connection that has been made in our culture and society to the hypocrisy. And so people might then use a different term, maybe like, I'm devout. And perhaps this is how we might want to understand what James is saying here, even though he uses the word religious. He's speaking to those who think they're devout and sincere in their faith because they do these external activities. They may not think they're religious hypocrites, but it's quite possible that they are. And so how can this be determined? Well, James proposes a test, or at least a, a way to show that there's a way to, to verify whether our person's devotion and religious activity are sincere or whether they're just shams of hypocrisy. Right? Because not everybody who goes to church and prays and reads the Bible and talks about God is a religious hypocrite. But some are. And the test that James gives here is to see how well they're able to restrain their tongue. Do they have it under control? Are they slow to speak as he charged back in verse 19? Or does their tongue run loose and go unchecked, wreaking havoc with what it spews out? James warns about the one who does not bridle his tongue. Now, bridle along with a, with a bit, which James mentions in a fuller discourse uh, about the tongue in chapter 3, well, these are used by a rider to control a horse, right? The bit goes kind of into the, uh, into the mouth of the horse, and the bridle fits around the head, and then, of course, the reins are attached to the bridle. And, of course, this becomes an apt illustration for control in general, but, again, especially the control of the tongue, because, again, the the bit actually fits into the mouth and presses on the tongue of the horse. Well, the rider, with with the, the bit and the bridle and the reins in place, a rider is then able to, with a slight tug of the reins, is able to uh, to control the pace of the horse, and he's able to uh, to make it stop. He can have the horse turn to the right or turn to the left with quite ease. But without a bit and a bridle, without any reins, unless the, the rider is very skilled and the horse is used to it and been trained, well, the horse may take the rider on quite a wild ride. That could, of course, endanger the life of the rider. And so the bit and the bridle are important ways to control the horse. And so as this bridle controls a horse, well, people, religious people, especially Christian people, should control their tongues. That is, they should be careful not to speak rash or angry words, lies, gossip, slander, rude, filthy words, and insults that lash out in order to inflict harm on others. The unbridled tongue is a destructive force. And again, James will get into that more uh, uh, in more detail in chapter 3. 
But then how does this become a test regarding the truth and sincerity of one's faith and religion? Well, it's because the tongue often reveals the very heart of a person. And it will also reveal the heart of a person certainly much more accurately than someone's outward activity and the religious uh, actions that they do. Jesus declares in Luke 6, verse 45, A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth good. But an evil man, out of the evil treasures of his heart, brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. And so Jesus' point here is that whatever it is that fills your heart is eventually going to make its way out through your mouth and what you speak. And so if your heart is filled with with truth and righteousness, well then you're going to speak truth and righteousness. But if your heart is filled with hypocrisy, with filthiness and with evil, well then you're going to speak such things and you'll speak those things even if your religious actions are saying something different. Even if you're going to church, even if you're reading your Bible, even if you're praying, even if you're uh, you know, just talking about God in conversation. If your speech, your speech can undermine your actions, and it's your speech that we ought to pay attention to, and what comes out of your mouth more than your actions. And so we should note that how we speak, again, further reflects how we live the rest of our lives. And so this may also refer to not just uh, our actions, but our attitudes and our other non-religious actions, as well as our words. Now, we often hear of hypocrites described as those who don't practice what they preach. And certainly that would apply here. But there are also hypocrites who display a certain religious practice, things that they do in order to be seen and thought well of by others, but who then reveal their hypocrisy because they don't preach the same devotion and religious affection in their lives or in their comparable words. Right? So you can also not uh, preach what you, pa- what you practice, as the case may be. And so this then becomes the test to verify the, the sincerity of one's religious actions. But know carefully what James says here in verse 26. <clears throat> the one who does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart. This is curious because usually a hypocrite speaking with an unbridled tongue of lies, deceit, gossip, and profanity, and whose general way of living reflects the same, usually by their religious actions, are actually seeking to deceive others, right? They want others to think of them, and yet, of course, they're undermining it by their speech. They want others to think better of them because they they go to church, because they pray, because they carry out other religious rituals. Well, James has bad news for them. You see, they're deceiving their own hearts. 
and they may be able to fool others, at least for a time, and though they might think it, it's impossible though for them to fool God. And so in the end, the charade that they're putting on, this charade of hypocrisy, is only fooling and deceiving themselves. They're being fooled into thinking that just by saying a few prayers and mentioning God on occasion, that this somehow covers them and keeps them safe. When in reality, they aren't. Because like the scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus condemned, their hearts are ultimately far away from God. They may be religious, but James says plainly that their religion is useless. And a useless religion, the religion of hypocrites, is empty and vain. It won't bring peace. It won't bring comfort. And it certainly won't bring any kind of eternal joy and comfort. For those to whom James is writing, and for us, we then need to be wary of such useless religion. We need to examine our own hearts. We need to keep our tongues in check and be sincere in all of our religious duties. So what's the alternative then to a useless religion? What does it look like? Well, James tells us here in verse 27, pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Now, the first thing that we need to clarify here is whether this is a precise definition of true religion or is James simply laying forth a general principle. Now, if it's a precise definition, well, then it would mean that true religion concerns itself only with visiting orphans and widows and only with being vigilant about keeping ourselves from the stains of the world. But certainly, we know true religion involves much more than these. Are we only to visit orphans and widows? And only during times of trouble? How about the sick and the poor? How about others who grieve? How about those who are healthy but are just in need of encouragement? And how about our living parents and spouses and children and and family members? Should we not also visit them and minister to them in times of trouble? And what about keeping ourselves unspotted or unstained by the world? What does that mean? Is it only the sinful influences of the world that we need to keep ourselves from? The things that are out there? What about the sinfulness of our own hearts? And the temptations of the evil one? Should we not also guard against those? Well, indeed we should. And so James isn't giving us a specific kind of restricted definition of true religion here. He's just laying out general principles that are to lead and guide us. General principles that he summarizes in these two actions. Visiting the orphans and widows and keeping oneself unspotted from the world. And the important thing to remember here is that these actions are simply examples of the greater summary of the law of God and the true religion of God, 
which is loving the Lord our God with our hearts, souls, minds, and strength, and loving our neighbors as ourselves. Now we'll consider how these examples fit into these commands in just a bit, but for now, they point us toward religion that is pure and undefiled in the sight of our God and the Father. Now this leads us to the next significant point that James is making here. When it comes to true religion, how it's to be expressed and carried out, well, God alone is the one who sets the boundaries and limits. Right? He defines religion. He defines what we're to believe about Him, about ourselves, about the creation around us, and He alone sets forth for us in His Word the duty that He requires of us, and even in what manner we're to carry out that duty, even in what condition our hearts must be as we carry out that duty. The Lord prescribes it all. This is what James means by pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father. Right? It's pure and undefiled in His sight because He's the one alone who's setting the standard. We don't get to define what religion is. God does. We don't get to define what the true religion is. God is the one who defines it. Now this, in this we're reminded of uh, what we ought to be familiar with, the regulative principle of worship. Right? That principle we're given in God's Word, which calls us to worship God only in the way that He commands us. Not according to our own desires and interests, not with our own innovations or preferences, but we're to worship God according to the standard which He Himself has set and laid down in His Word. Well, we find a parallel here. A true religion which we'll see goes far beyond external religious activities like church attendance, prayer, Bible reading, singing praise, and giving and serving uh, in the confines of the church building. Those things are important and we ought to uh, do them diligently as God has commanded us to do those things. But true religion is much more than that. True religion extends even into how we speak outside of these walls. And how we live our lives day to day. How we seek to to give, to serve, and to minister to one another and to other in needs out there in the world and in our own communities. True and undefiled religion before God isn't just churchy religious activity. It's a lifestyle. A lifestyle that's committed to full obedience to our God and Savior, not just in church, but in all areas of our lives. In our recreations, in our work, in our relationships, whatever it is, true religion is to be carried out in all those areas. And it involves that daily submitting ourselves to the Lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ over our lives and manifesting then that Lordship of His lives and our servanthood to Him in ways that He's commanded us in His Word. Again, it's not just about what we're doing here, but how we're living our lives out there in the world. Well, James has given us here three ways 
in which this true religion is manifested. There may be other ways, but here are three important ways that he lays out. And the first we've already considered. Again, as we're out there living in the world, our tongues must be tamed. The unbridled tongue brings destruction and harm. It tears down instead of building up. It curses instead of blesses. It, it speaks lies instead of truth. It, it hates instead of loves. It runs away with evil and wicked, wickedness instead of pursuing goodness and the glory of God. And just as the tongue of a religious hypocrite reveals his hypocrisy, so too will the unbridled tongue show forth and put on display the depravity of a heart that's dead in sins and transgression. And so our tongues must be tamed and bridled. But how? How do we do that? Do we need to put a a bit and a bridle in our mouth? Well, maybe. Might help some of us. No, only by the grace of God, right? Only by the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit in us are we going to be able to tame our tongue. Only when we hear and receive the gospel by faith and commit ourselves to be faithful and sincere doers of the word will our hearts be changed. And once our hearts are changed, only then will the Spirit of Christ work in us good fruit and faithful obedience so that we will be able to control our tongue and speak truth, love, and righteousness at all times. A tongue that's controlled and a life that's lived in a way consistent with a heart that's been redeemed by Christ truly manifests pure and undefiled religion. It's the consistency between our, our walk and our talk. Whichever way you want to do it, whether it's the you got the outward, you're doing the right things, but your talk is undermining it, or you're speaking the right words and your activity and the way you're living your life is undermining it, there needs to be consistency between what we say and what we do, what we preach and how we live. That's true, pure, undefiled religion. That's one manifestation of it. A second manifestation of true religion is loving your neighbor as yourself. And as we noted before, this is the command that that James highlights when he challenges in verse 27 to visit orphans and widows in in their trouble. Now orphans and widows are especially noted because they're the most helpless and vulnerable. Especially at the time... Uh, James was writing, right? They don't have all the safety nets that we uh, have today. Orphans have no parents to care for them, to provide for them, or protect them. And so if extended family members didn't take them in, well, then they were left on their own to survive if they could. And oftentimes they didn't. They were helpless. Widows are similar. Widows are those who've lost their husbands, often losing their chief support and provider. They too were left vulnerable if there were no other family members to take them in. The orphan and the widow are the most helpless of neighbors. And we're called to love them and to care for them. But you may wonder... 
why doesn't James just say, neighbors? Visit your neighbors in their time of trouble. That would certainly be very clear. Why does he single out orphans and widows? Well, there may be a few reasons. One is that God himself is particularly mindful of the orphans and the widows, the poor and the needy, the outcasts and the stranger. And we see this throughout Scripture, throughout the Old Testament, and even into the New Testament. God is always ready to help those who are in trouble and distress, the poor and the needy. Whether it's materially needy, or especially spiritually needy. Because God is a God... His attributes are, He's full of compassion and mercy. And He saves those those who can't save themselves. And so the one who professes true religion ought to seek to imitate God in His mercy and compassion. Right? It's as simple as that. We should care for orphans and widows because God cares for orphans and widows and we ought to imitate God. And again, orphans or widows are often the ones in most need of mercy and compassion. One other reason James singles these out, amongst others, is because orphans and widows exemplify those whom Jesus calls in Matthew 25 as the least of these. And remember in that passage there when Jesus says that when we care and minister to the least of these, we're actually caring for and ministering to Christ Himself. And then certainly that it's true, then that that's true religion. Because by caring and ministering to Christ, then we're caring and ministering to God. But here's the, the key thing to remember. If we neglect to care for even the least of these, if we turn away from helping the helpless, well then how can we be expected and counted on to help and be of a help to anyone? Even if they are our neighbor. Right? And so there's a a sense of degrees. If you're not going to help the the ones who most need it, well who's going to trust you to help those who are just, you know... They don't, they're not as needy, but they still have needs. And so it's a matter of degrees. If we're not mindful of the most needy, well then we're not going to be responsible with something bigger, seemingly bigger. And so by loving and ministering to the orphans and the widows, we demonstrate that we truly love our neighbors as ourselves. And when we do that, we manifest in our lives true religion. Right? That we're, we're seeking to, to love and care for them as God has called us to do. The second great commandment. Well, the third manifestation <clears throat> of true religion is loving God with all our hearts, souls, minds, and strength. Right? That's the greatest commandment. First and foremost, even above loving our neighbors, even above loving our spouses, our children, our parents, our friends, the orphans and the widows, we must love God above all. Now this, of course, we understand. I hope we understand it. But where do we find it here in James' words? 
Well, we find it not only in obedience to the command to love our neighbor, and the least of these, again, because what Jesus says, that we ultimately, by um, serving the least of these, we're serving Him, and ultimately by serving Him, we're serving God and loving God. So there's that connection. But we also see the command to love God in James' charge here to keep ourselves unspotted from the world or unstained from the world. And there are two key ways that this shows our love for God. First, keeping ourselves unspotted from the world means that we keep ourselves from being polluted by the lust, the temptations, and the evil which mark this fallen and sinful world in which we live. In other words, keeping ourselves unspotted from the world means we must pursue holiness in our lives. And we've talked about this before, the the pursuit of sanctification and holiness. By pursuing holiness, we show our love for God as being His obedient children. And Peter uh, declares this in 1 Peter 1 saying, As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. God calls us to love Him by being as Him, by being holy and pursuing holiness and righteousness. We show our love to Him when we strive to be holy even as He is holy. And when we're keeping ourselves from being unspotted from the world, from all the, the sin and the lust and the temptations that we are part of the, the sin and misery of this world, we're striving after holiness. We're showing our love for God. Well, a second way that we show our love for God in keeping ourselves unspotted from the world is that when we do so, we again commit ourselves to following God and not the way of the world. You see, we show that we're putting God first and foremost in our lives. Even as Peter said, we're no longer following that old way and uh, the the former lust of way and how we walked in ignorance. We're not doing that anymore. We have, that's our old God. That's the idol that leads to destruction. We now follow the one true living God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we show this by by putting Him first. We're seeking after Him first in our lives. It means that we're putting away from us all idols, all false gods and the sinful lusts and passions that hold sway in our lives. We're putting them away. We're putting them to death. And in their place, by the grace of God, we're putting on Christ. (coughs) We're putting on truth and righteousness. We're putting on love and mercy, compassion, and yes, even holiness. By fulfilling this command of Christ, we show our love and our gratitude to Him and our God and our Heavenly Father. True religion then manifests itself in our lives when we love God with all our hearts, mind, soul, and strength when we love our neighbors from, as ourselves, and when we keep our tongue tamed and restrained. But there's one final point that's important, especially these days given the, 
the condition of which of much of what calls itself the church today. You see, for too often, there are attempts to emphasize one of these love commands to the exclusion of the other, or some even pitting them against one another as if they were opposed to one another. And this comes about when we consider some who emphasize the love of neighbor and ministry to the poor and needy, the helpless and the outcast, as the greatest expression of true religion. Now we just said it's an expression, but can we call it the greatest expression? I don't think so. Well, this is often the tendency this is often the tendency of the kind of the more uh, liberal mainline churches right who who reduce the gospel to nothing more than social justice, social justice defined by men, by the way, not by God. there is a social justice defined by God, but it's an emphasis on on social justice and relief and seeking to gain relief from all societal ills. And they do this, though, to the exclusion of love for God, and in particular, as we've seen, the manifestation of the love for God and keeping ourselves unspotted from the world by pursuing holiness. They don't want to have anything to do with that. Because this translates into their rejection of the moral law of God and then the embracing of all the corruption that the fallen and sinful world offers including but not limited to all forms of sexual morality, perversions, idolatry, paganism, and even the murder of the least of these through abortion, is what they promote and rejoice in. Friends, such religion is useless and vain, and dare I say, evil, and of the evil one. But of course, then on the other end, so that's one danger, right? That's one side, extreme. But then on the other end of things, you have the more conservative evangelical and even reformed churches, which may do well acknowledging uh, love for God at first, as first and foremost, including the pursuit of holiness and, and the doctrine of God and the theology of God that we find in the Scriptures and upholding that and all that that's faithful and true to the Scriptures. That's good. But at times, this can be done to the exclusion of a true and sincere love for our neighbors and those who are in need, like the orphans and the widows, the homeless and the foreigner, the poor, the the social outcast, the the drug addict, the prostitute, and even the person who identifies as one of the, the various manifestations of sexual perversion that's so prevalent today. You see, they are the ones who are in real trouble. They're the ones who are in desperate need of what we have. They're the ones who are trapped and who are still enslaved to their sin. And so we need to be mindful of them. And we need to be active in ministering to them and visiting them, not only or not in exclusion to our love for God, not accepting their sin, 
But in conjunction with our love for God and our further fulfillment of it, that we'd proclaim the gospel to them and point them to the way of truth and salvation and forgiveness of sin so they can be freed from that sin and freed from the destruction and the condemnation that is the, uh, the path that they're on will lead them to. But we can't do that if we're not seeking to reach out to them and ministering to them in their time of trouble. And so again, there needs to be a balance. right? And it goes back to the balance, and I think John talks about this in, in his, uh, one of his letters, to live in the world, but not being of it. Right? Loving God first and foremost, but also loving our neighbor as ourselves. Being faithful to minister to the orphans and widows of the world, but also being faithful to do what is needed here, right in our own hearts, by the power and the work of the Spirit of Christ working in us as we seek to pursue holiness and Christ likeness. Friends, that is true religion. Keeping that balance, loving God, loving our neighbors, controlling our tongue. That is the true religion which our Lord Jesus Christ manifested and expressed even in His own life. Jesus perfectly spoke the truth in love even to those who were in sin. He spoke the truth in love, revealing a pure heart devoted to God, loving God as Father with perfect obedience, righteousness, and holiness, and loving the poor and needy neighbors that came to Him. And then he reached out to to heal and to serve and to minister. Even, and especially us, who are spiritually poor and destitute. And undeserving of any mercy and grace. Who are unable to save ourselves. And yet God through Christ Jesus reaches out to us to save and deliver us. And to secure our future hope in Him and with Him. Christ Jesus so loved us and He gave His life for us so that we might be reconciled to God, that we might be forgiven of our sins and given the blessed gift of eternal life in His glorious and holy presence forever and ever and ever. This is the true religion. Truly may the Spirit of Christ Enable you even now to hear it, to receive it, and to do it all sincerely to the glory of God alone. Let's pray. O Lord God in heaven, we rejoice and give thanks to you for for your word and this reminder and this challenge to us helping us to understand what true religion is. And we know that the world scoffs at religion in general because of the corruption of sin in the world and and the hypocrisy that is so rampant in religious people. 
And yet you have revealed what true religion is. And the the truth, uh, obviously, is even if we would seek after this and seek to be faithful doers of your word, to tame our tongues, to speak truth and righteousness into all things, if we were to uh, show our great love to you by pursuing uh, holiness in our own lives and by uh, showing our love to our neighbors and ministering to the poor, we know that even... Then people will see us as hypocrites because we don't love and embrace the sin that they love and embrace because they are in darkness and the darkness hates the light. And as we shine as light, they will throw every slur and every uh, assault upon us seeking to discourage us and pull us away. But Father, we pray that you would truly draw us closer to yourself, that you would equip us and strengthen us to walk in truth and to not waver in these things, but to pursue them with all diligence. Even as we again come and gather together to faithfully hear and receive your word, and as we're challenged to be doers of your word, may we do this in order to please you and to glorify you. And knowing in our own hearts that we are a free conscience before you and that there is no sin, no hypocrisy in us. That we don't matter then what the world thinks and says. And so we just pray, Lord, that even our own congregation here, that you would use us as witnesses to this truth. And even as we go about to the, uh, do this neighborhood outreach next week, we pray that as we knock on the doors of our neighbors, that we would have opportunity to serve and minister to them, to show our love to them, and to declare the truth of the gospel to them. And that you would be glorified in all these things. Father, we rejoice and give thanks for the truth of your word, and we pray that especially you would apply these truths to each of our own hearts, drawing us all closer to yourself. All for your glory and praise and honor. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.